Hello, hello, and welcome to another installment of Closing Arguments. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. It's great to have you back for another edition of the show. I've got really the star of our show in Mr. Jack Razumich, or, you know, as most people call him, Jack formerly John Razumich, but we'll go by Jack today here on the show. But look, hey, we're so excited to have you with us today, whether it be on the Facebook live stream uh, or after the fact on a podcasting platform, maybe a YouTube channel after the fact. All the same, happy to have you with us for today's conversation. If you are checking us out on the Facebook live stream, feel free to leave a comment or even a question below. Uh, you know, I'll be monitoring that throughout the course of the show. We'll take a few minutes at the end of the show to answer some of those questions and comments. But either way, we'd love to have you chime in and uh, even check it, even kind of hear where you're listening from today. Um, now, into the topic at hand today, you know, last episode, Jack and I covered the Miranda warnings. There was a lot to unpack within them, you know, where they first came into, you know, into fruition within criminal law as a whole. And then additionally, how they've kind of molded really into what we see them as today. Uh, but today we're going into the backside of things. What happens after a conviction? That's really the overarching theme of today's show. But we're going to we're gonna dive into a few different elements within that. First of which, we're going to go into what the appeals process is what it is, what it looks like, how it impacts what Jack does on a regular basis with Razumich and Associates. Additionally, we're going to go into the topic of post-conviction relief. You know, what this looks like from, you know, a defendant or, a, or you know, an individual facing prosecution, what this looks like from their side. Additionally, sentence modification is what will be the final theme that we're going to cover today. So with that being said, let's go ahead and bring Jack on to get today's conversation rocking and rolling. Jack, great to see you. How are you doing today? Hey, Ryan, good to see you again. Have we, have we worked out the whole soundboard thing with having the Price is Right music when we actually bring me out on that? <laughs> we could, I'll, I'll make it happen in post-production we need, today. <laughs> we need to see about it, getting that done. Seems seems I like it's, it. yeah, it's just, it's, just like, hey, here you are, you know. <laughs> Jack Razumich, come on down. We need it. We, I love that line. It's right. too good. Uh, but hey, look, Jack, great to have you on with us today. Obviously, this is a good conversation, one that's going to kind of continue to lay the foundation from some of these earlier episodes that we're having here for Closing Arguments. Really, for the first theme, you know, as I just mentioned, really, we're going into the conversation of what happens after a conviction. Our first theme that we really want to get into is the appeal process. So, right, you know, somebody's convicted of a crime, they can certainly appeal that conviction. So, walk us through, you know, what this appeals process looks like. When can someone appeal a case? How do they go about doing it? Give us that 10,000 foot view of this appeal process, if you will. Sure. What when a trial's done? It just because a trial's done doesn't mean it's done. Done. Um, in the state of Indiana, I, in most states, actually all states, now I think about it, um, if you are convicted after a trial, um, everyone has at least one appeal of right. That means that you have the ability to appeal it up to the next court down the line. Uh, I think at this point in time, all 50 states, uh, as well as the federal circuit, do have what's referred to as an intermediate court of appeals before their individual Supreme Courts. So if you get a decision that you don't like, um, you know, you go to trial and you're convicted after trial, uh, you do have the right to appeal that determination up to the next court along the lines. Uh, that's referred to as a direct appeal. And that's what most people think about when they consider the appeals process is that direct appeal to the next court up. So, for example, here in Indiana, if you proceed to trial and you lose at the trial, uh, you can request the ability to appeal that decision to the Court of Appeals. And the procedure that's involved in that is um, 
once the you know the judge will make their determination if you have a bench trial the jury will make their determination if you're having a jury trial and once the sentencing is done that's where the clock starts ticking in indiana for the purposes of filing your appeal um so it's it's not from the date of conviction it's from the date of sentencing so that's where indiana's procedural rules calculate where the time limit starts you've got a very very limited window to be able to pursue an appeal in indiana you have 30 days from the date of sentencing to appeal that decision up to the court of appeals and as far as what you can appeal you can theoretically appeal anything that is legally possible to be appealed uh, mm. which is probably the most lawyerly answer you can get but that's, <laughs> that's effectively how the process works uh, trial courts in Indiana are considered to be triers of fact. That means that the trial court is the one that makes the determination as to uh, credibility of witnesses, uh, mm -hmm. judgments on evidence, things of that nature. The courts of appeals are considered to be triers of law, which is the more ivory tower aspects of this. Um, what the court of appeals does is when you are appealing a decision from the trial court, you're not allowed to ask the court of appeals to reweigh the the credibility of a witness or 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 rejudge their testimony you're asking them to make determinations as to whether or not something legally impermissible happened at your trial mm -hmm. one of the primary things that gets appealed for example is uh, jury instructions um, if your attorney submits jury instructions and the, the trial court says, I don't really want to give this instruction. It's covered by something else, or I don't think this is appropriate. That's the type of thing that you appeal. You would make the argument to the court of appeals that if this instruction had been given to the jury, the outcome might have been different. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the court of appeals determines that as an issue of law. Same situation if the prosecutor's office gives an instruction and your attorney objects to that instruction being given. The appeal on that issue would be, this instruction was given erroneously. If this instruction had not been given, the jury might have ruled differently. And uh, and that's what the Court of Appeals looks at. Uh, they also look at issues of admissibility of testimony. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's actually that is actually why attorneys object in trial it is sure. that's that's kind of the secret behind the curtain aspect of it. Uh, procedurally, if an objection is not raised, an objection is, a question of law. You were saying that I object because this is not permitted under this law. And that's what the Court of Appeals looks at. So if you don't object, that, that's what the attorneys are doing. If you're not objecting, you can't appeal that issue. Um, and that's, that's it's very complicated perfecting a trial record for appeal. Sure. Uh, I, ideally, we don't want to do it. You know, we, we really want to not have to put our clients in the position of appealing a case. Sometimes that happens, though, and and that's what gets appealed is that record of what objections were or were not there uh, are 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 considered. Got it. So so in this world of appeals, Jack, you know, I think what most of us, the layman, really that's that's kind of privy to is okay. If an appeal is granted, and you know, it's this game of of law related tennis with appeals. You know, you're bouncing the appeals through different different court levels. The big question is, how does something get to the Supreme Court level? How does the Supreme Court ultimately consider your case? What is that ladder? look like when it comes to appeals rising up the ranks to finally be looked at by the Supreme Court? 
Well, you've got two different tracks that that can take. Um, with regards to your state Supreme Court, uh, as I said, everyone's got one appeal as a matter of, of right. You know, everyone can appeal their case to the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Um, state Supreme Courts, as well as the, the Supreme Court of the United States, have a significant amount of discretion over what appeals they do or do not accept. In the state of Indiana, if you want the Indiana Supreme Court to review the case, uh, you would do what's referred to as a petition for transfer. That's the legal terminology that we have in Indiana. If you want the Supreme Court of the United States to look at it, you file what's referred to as a petition for certiori, which I'm sure has a, a translation from Latin to English that I simply don't know. The law is, <laughs> the law is full of phrases like that. Um, oh, sure. The, the on the state side, it's it's a lot easier to get a state Supreme Court to review your case than it is to get the United States Supreme Court, because most criminal prosecutions are, of, uh, for very obvious reasons, they're brought under state law. And as such, um, the individual state that your case is in, that state Supreme Court is going to be the final authority on the state law uh, to get a state Supreme Court to look at your case you usually have to make an argument that there is uh, that the decision of the Court of Appeals was in violation of a prior Court of Appeals decision or a prior Supreme Court decision, um, or that there's some sort of novel issue of, of state constitutional law or state statutory construction that the Court of Appeals ignored. Uh, mm. One of my cases that I, I think I've had I think that I have had two cases out of my trials that got appealed up to the Indiana Supreme Court. Uh, one of them dealt with jury instructions, which was one of these we had talked about before. Um, and another one dealt with an issue of um, prosecutorial misconduct that went up on appeal. And, and those both stopped at the state level. Mm -hmm. To get the Supreme Court of the United States to review your case you have to make an argument that there is an important constitutional right that is impacted that the state has ruled uh, is somehow in violation of the federal law. So uh, going back to our last episode, the Miranda decision, one of the reasons that the state, one of the reasons the Supreme Court of the United States reviewed the Miranda decision uh, or, or the Miranda case, uh, Ernesto Miranda's case, mm -hmm. is that dealt with an argument that he was being denied his constitutional right to uh, representation, his right to remain silent under the federal constitution. If that argument had not been raised, there would have not been a basis to get it in front of the Supreme Court of the United States because they don't have any control over Arizona's procedural laws, procedural statutes, as long as they don't violate the federal constitution. Um, Got it. Most cases, whether it, whether an individual defendant wants to acknowledge it or understand it or believe it or accept it, most state cases typically will not involve federal constitutional questions, even if there is, even if there is, let's say, a Fourth Amendment issue. Uh, there, there are a lot of cases that on on the trial court level, um, you can argue that evidence is admitted in violation of search and seizure prohibitions. Uh, most states will have comparable state constitutional amendments that the federal ones do. So for example, the, the federal fourth amendment, uh, the Indiana version of that is um, article one, section 11. That's, that's, that's the Indiana version of the fourth amendment. 
procedurally, when you're making an appeal, if you're making a constitutional argument that evidence is presented impermissibly, it, you you would be a pretty bad trial attorney who did not make a record and a very bad appellate attorney who did not make a record on both the state and federal constitutional claims. And overwhelmingly, state Supreme Courts or state Court of Appeals will prefer to resolve any constitutional issues under their individual state statutes and under their own state constitutions. Uh, the reason for that is the Supreme Court of the United States will give a great deal of deference to the individual states. Uh, and, and if they can avoid taking a constitutional question because they looked at the briefs and said, oh, you know, well, their, uh, their state constitution seems to be perfectly hunky-dory with this. Mm-hmm. Um, one less case for us to have to worry about. They'll, they'll usually try to sure. punt it that way. Sure, sure. The the less that gets pushed off to them, the less eyes, I guess, ultimately are on the case and the impact that it'll have on a federal level. Um, so thank you for kind of breaking it down, what that ladder looks like to get up to the United States Supreme Court level, let alone the Indiana State Supreme Court level. But my, I guess my final question, you know, in regards to the appeal process is, you know, what really what happens if an appeal is successful? Is it that, you know, hey, this is getting bounced back to the court? What is ultimately the, the physical result of a successful appeal? Generally speaking, not much. Uh, it, it depends on the nature of the appeal, the, the offense that's being appealed, how that process is, is laid out. Unlike what you see on television or how the press as a whole reports it, courts of appeals don't actually exonerate defendants. Uh, again, remember all that a court of appeal is all that a court of appeal is doing is ruling on an issue of law. They're ruling on is this you know was this permitted under law to be presented to the jury? That's all they're ruling on. So, um, using the jury instruction example, uh, when 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 I had a case a number of years back that went up to the Indiana Supreme Court on the issue of jury instructions. What the Indiana Supreme Court said is like, yeah, you know, these jury instructions, these jury instructions bad, these jury instructions should have been given, um, go back and do it over. And what happens with that appeals process then is it goes back down to the trial court level and the prosecutor at that point in time has to make a determination as to whether or not they want to retry the case or the parties are free to uh, reach a new agreement. If they, if they want to reach a new plea agreement, they can certainly do that. But that's what happens if an appeal is successful. If an appeal is successful, you basically go back to the day before the trial started. And there, everyone's in determination at that point in time of, okay, do we schedule this for another trial using the new guidance that was just given to us? Uh, do we not want to go to trial at this point in time? Um, and that's the determination that's there. It's also worth noting that I, I believe the last statistics that I saw were that something like 11% of criminal appeals are actually successful in the state of Indiana. So it's it, if you if you successfully appeal a determination, first of all, one, um, it may not necessarily feel like it to you, but man, that's a huge victory because the, sure. the odds are really, really against you to actually get that appeal to go your way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the end of the process. All, all that happens is you go back to the day before the trial and, and you have to make your determination as to what direction you do or don't want to do. 
Um, and that's, it's actually kind of a fascinating dynamic at that point in time. Um, mm -hmm. Direct appeals like this usually happen in a short enough period of time that it's not impossible to retry the case. Okay. Um, you know, so the witnesses will still be available. The, the evidence will still be available. Um, I, I think that on average, on average, your, your intermediate court of appeals case, you're looking at about six to nine months from the date the appeal is filed to, to getting a decision back. That's just at the okay. Indiana Court of Appeals level. Uh, obviously, if it goes to the Supreme Court, that can take more time. Right, right. But, you know, that's that's not that long of a period of time. Again, remember what we talked about with the Fast and Speedy Trials episode. Some of these cases can take years to get done. Oh, yeah. So nine months to be told, drop, oh, drop well, you know, yeah, it's like, go, go back to like the day before the trial happening and nine months is nine months is nothing. And, sure. you know, smart prosecutors will basically kind of keep an eye on the situation, keep an eye on the briefs, uh, getting ideas to how the arguments are going to, to maybe stay in contact with their essential witnesses, the essential evidence that they might need if it has to happen again. Got it. Got it. So, so uh, the appeals process is a super interesting one because everybody in, like you said, in most instances, the appeal option exists, but I want to shift into our second theme. Now the conversation today, and that's this, this idea of post-conviction relief or PCR. I think the best place to really start with this Jack is to first tell us what it is. What is post-conviction relief? How, you know, how does it apply to different court cases and, you know, criminal law cases, but also how does it really differ from the appeals that you just walked us through? Could you give us that kind of high level overview? Right. Post-conviction relief is, it's a civil proceeding. Uh, a criminal trial is, of course, a criminal proceeding. A direct appeal, even though it's an appellate situation, is still considered to be a direct, it's a criminal aspect of it. Post-conviction relief is a civil proceeding. Effectively, you are having a trial on the trial. When you are filing a post-conviction relief petition, you are alleging that there was that, that your incarceration or your conviction is in violation of the state or federal constitution for one reason or another. Uh, the primary reason that you'll see someone file a post-conviction relief proceeding is that they're alleging that they received ineffective assistance of their trial counsel. Uh, the idea is that the trial attorney uh, was, was so deficient in his or her performance that you know any any reasonable defense attorney would have done a better job and the jury would have likely come up with a better determination or a, or a different decision than what actually was mm -hmm. um that's that's the single most common thing that you'll see for a post-conviction relief proceeding the second most common thing that you'll see with a pcr is an argument that there was newly discovered evidence that was not capable of being located with due diligence at the time of the original case. Oh, so, okay. you know, those, those murder cases or uh, sexual assault cases that you'll see where they've been in jail for 20, 30 years, but there's mm -hmm. new DNA testing and they're doing the DNA testing. That's the exonerations. That's what that is. That's, sure. that's a post-conviction relief, uh, which for the, for the benefit of anyone who's listening outside of Indiana, uh, post-conviction relief is what we refer to as in, in Indiana. In the federal system, it's considered to be a, a writ of habeas corpus. Um, more people are familiar with that term because, again, that's something that is popularized in the press. Uh, but it's, this, it's the same type of proceeding. You're arguing that your incarceration is in violation of state or federal law. 
Um, and, and that's that's what's happening with those cases with the DNA testing years and years later is the attorneys are arguing, hey, it was impossible for us to have this evidence 30 years ago. They're, 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 the changes in the science have been so great that we can't, we could not have had this, even if we knew that it was something that could exist. We know it exists now. Uh, we think that it's going to make a difference and we want to do this testing. So right. there's, there are a couple of other grounds, but those are the two primary grounds that you usually see with the post-conviction relief. Got it. So my next, my next question kind of leads into kind of, I guess, the inner workings really of PCR in that how many times could PCR essentially be filed within a given case or, or better yet, you know, to kind of mix the two themes that we're, we're discussing here today. Can you, can, can a PCR finding be appealed? Like how, how does that work? You know, how often do you find PCRs popping up in a given, in a given case? And then also can they be appealed uh, when, when introduced to a case? Sure. The short answer is you can have as many PCRs as the court feels like letting you have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's like any other civil litigation. You know, if you, if you sue your neighbor for hitting you with a car, um, and that litigation doesn't go your way, but you have a new ground for, for trying to sue him again, um, because it's civil, there's not, there's not a double jeopardy situation in civil law. That's, that's a complete criminal aspect of it. So as a practical matter, you really get one PCR because to get a subsequent PCR, you need the court's permission to file it. And you have to have unique grounds that you could not have raised the first time around. Um, an example would be, uh, again, just using the basis uh, of ineffective assistance of trial counsel that we talked about. That's, that's, again, that's the number one thing that you usually see with a PCR. Um, if you can go and convince the judge that your post-conviction relief counsel was ineffective, you can presumably get the court to authorize a second PCR filing, but those start getting incredibly rare. It, it's one of those things sure. that the court wants to the, the court wants to make sure the procedures are being followed um but there are limits it, it is one of those things of they're not going to allow you to file the same case over and over again um unless you have something new that you can show um affected the the situation the first time around they're not going to give you a second shot at it um a pcr can absolutely be appealed it, it, it's an original case. It's civil instead of criminal, but the same general rights of appeals apply. You can appeal the PCR um, as as a matter of right. You get one appeal as a matter of right, which is your direct appeal concept. And um, if you're going to appeal a PCR, there's, there's there's one special claim that gets raised in the appeal for the first time. Generally speaking, yeah, generally speaking, you cannot raise appeals. It, it, you cannot raise issues in appeal that were not raised at the trial court level. With a PCR, if you are appealing the PCR, you are allowed to make a special claim in that appeal that says that you had ineffective assistance of appellate counsel. So even though that's not something that you would raise at the trial court level, if you were appealing a PCR, that's where you would throw your ineffective assistance of appellate counsel in. Um, and the general rules with appeals actually still apply. You know, you, you've got the appeal okay. of right. You can petition it to the uh, state Supreme Court for review. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you cannot, as far as I am aware, and and in in full disclosure, my office does not handle appellate work of any type. We handle we do handle PCRs, but we handle them at the trial court level because okay. uh, we're trial attorneys here. Mm-hmm. Um, so take this with a grain of salt. As far as I am aware, you cannot directly appeal a PCR to the Supreme Court of the United States. It okay. is possible to get your state case into the federal system through that writ of habeas corpus, Mm -hmm. because if you're alleging that your incarceration is in violation of state or federal law, that gives you an ability to file a habeas corpus in the federal courts. And that does put you on that ladder to try to get to the Supreme Court. Uh, There, there are procedural rules and thresholds that have to be met Mm -hmm. in Indiana in Indiana, the trial court level, you effectively say, Hey, here's the issue that I'm arguing about. Uh, this is the legal standard that I'm looking at. This is why I get this PCR. Um, to transfer that over to the federal system, you have to fit under, um, there, it, was, it was a law that was passed in, uh, in, in the early years of the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's AEDPA, if I recall correctly. Don't ask me what that actually stands for because <laughs> I can't remember right now. Uh, but it's a federal law that basically controls when the federal courts can review state habeas petitions. Um, it, it primarily focuses on death penalty cases, of course, but you know other state cases can get in that if they fit under the umbrella of that statute. Same situation, they can get in the federal system that way. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so round it out for me here, just as we did with appeals and what happens when appeals are successful, what happens ultimately if PCR becomes successful? Pretty much the same thing, but the dynamic as to what direction you want to go is is very different. Um, much like with an appeal, the court, if, if the court finds that a PCR should be granted, the court's not going to turn around and say, um, okay, you know, that's it. No more trial. You're done. You know, get on out of here. Uh, don't commit trouble again. What happens is it does go back to the prosecutor's office for the purposes of determining uh, whether or not they want to retry the case. And, and where this becomes a bigger issue is, again, like I said, some of those PCRs will happen five, six decades after the actual conviction. Right. That can be a problem for both sides on, uh, on, on the process of what the, what they do or don't want to do um, with the murder cases, a lot of times, and, and you'll see this with like the, what the really big ones that make a lot of press. Uh, you saw this with the, uh, the central park five uh, when their when their cases were overturned, their cases were over, their convictions were overturned through the post-conviction relief process, through the habeas process. And what happened is it went back down to the trial court level and the prosecutors had to make the determination as to, okay, do we want to retry this case? And, and this is, you know, a good 20 plus years down the line at this point in time, mm-hmm. because again, they were exonerated because of DNA evidence, which was not available in the early to mid eighties, or at least not available as we understand it right now. So what happened, and this is, this is unfortunately the, the tragic effect of, of the criminal justice system sometimes because the system cannot admit that it made a mistake. Somehow, somehow psychologically, the system seems to think that if they admit that they made a mistake, the process will come crashing down on them like a house of cards. So what happens is you get a case that's vacated, you get a conviction that's vacated because of a PCR 
goes back down to the trial court level and the prosecutors will pretty frequently say, okay, you know, you've spent 15 years of your life behind bars. Um, sign this plea agreement, admitting that you're guilty and go home today or we'll retry the case. So it, be, it becomes a game of mm-hmm. chicken with that. And, um, you know, I, I get it. You know, that's, that's, that's hard. If you've just spent that long in prison for something that you didn't do, you know, being yeah. told you can go home today, that's, that's a hard thing to say no to, but that's, that is, that is the tragic part of a PCR mm-hmm. is that, you know, if, if you, if you win the PCR, you may not actually win because they're going to send it back to the trial court and the prosecutor will say, I still want your conviction. Um, and, and then you have to make the determination. Okay. Do I, do I sign this plea agreement and go home? Do I yeah. stay and try another trial? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, it's, there's not a good answer on that one. Sure. Sure. No, a, a tough situation for sure. So Jack, Jack, we've now covered the appeal process. We've covered post conviction relief. Let's get into the sentencing of everything now. So, a sentence is dealt out, but sentences can be modified. There is sentence modification. So how can a sentence be modified? What what all goes into this process? How is a, how does a judge ultimately play a role in this as well? Um, and this will kind of round out our conversation, this third and final theme for our, uh, our episode today. Sure. Sentence modification is... If you think that winning a direct appeal is complicated, if you think that winning... A PCR is complicated. Um, you have no idea how hard it is to win a sentence modification. Um, you can get a sentence modified through a direct appeal. If you'll recall from a few moments ago, one of the things that we talked about was that um, the, the clock starts ticking after your sentencing date. Your sentencing date is where the clock starts ticking on that 30 days to make your appeal. You can appeal the sentence. That is one of the things that you are authorized to appeal. That is an issue of law. It falls under Indiana Appellate Rule right. 7B. Um, and the Court of Appeals can reduce a sentence. They can also increase a sentence. So it's a little bit of a crapshoot. But you can appeal whatever sentence the court actually imposes after trial. So that's your first avenue of arguing for sentence modification is, is through a direct appeal with the Court of Appeals. Um, that's usually not successful. And the reason for that is under the way that um, the Court of Appeals and the State Supreme Court have interpreted how Rule 7B should be uh, imposed or, or, or analyzed, uh, they've largely held that sentence modification at the appellate level should be handled if there's what's referred to as an abuse of discretion at the trial court level. Uh, and an abuse of discretion would be if the trial court judge came in there just, you know, full of fury and, and fire and, and said, I'm doing this because, you know, it's the longest sentence I could possibly give to you. And I think that, you know, you deserve more time, but this is all I can give you. It's like, that's, you know, unless the judge can justify it otherwise, that's starting to kind of get to that issue. Like, was there an abusive process? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not going to try to modify a sentence on direct appeal, you do have a an ability to attack the sentence through what's known as a collateral attack. Um, that means that you are questioning the validity of the sentence for um, some sort of procedural reason. And you're very limited in how you can go about that, too. We get a lot of questions from people who sign guilty pleas who ask about modifying their sentence. 
well, if you sign a guilty plea, there is nothing for you to modify. Right, uh, right. The, the, the courts of appeals a very long time ago mm-hmm. decided that a guilty plea is a contract. It's a contract between you and the prosecutor, and whatever's in that contract is, is what everybody agrees to. And mm-hmm. if your plea agreement says you're going to do five years, then you're doing five years. You cannot modify that. Uh, the way that I explain to people when they come to our office and ask about those questions is, you know, if you if you go down to your local car dealership and you agree to pay $100 a month for the car mm-hmm. and six months in, you say, well, I can only pay 50 right now. It's like, you can absolutely pay 50 a month for the car if the dealer agrees to it. Right. Because that's another contract. And as you can imagine, you can get a process up. You can absolutely 100% get a prosecutor to agree to change the terms of the plea agreement and put that back in front of the judge. And if that happens, the judge is going to shrug his or her shoulders, say, okay, whatever. Uh, As you can imagine, that's not likely to happen. Yes. Yes. you had that negotiation, so that's not happening. So right. um, a, a plea agreement, a, a set term plea agreement um, cannot be modified unless the prosecution agrees to it, which is virtually impossible. The more common places where you will see sentence modifications are either you were convicted after you were sentenced after being convicted at trial um, or if you have what's referred to as an open plea agreement. An open plea agreement is a type of agreement where um everyone agrees yes you know this this defendant will plead guilty to this offense we just don't have an agreement as to what the sentence would be judge we want you to make the determination as to what the sentence is so it's very similar to what happens if you're convicted after trial if you go to trial and you're convicted the judge is the one who gets to make the determination as to what the sentence is so Mm -hmm. it's it's the same situation you're just removing the trial and admitting that you have guilt so if you have that open concept on it, if the judge is the one who's determining what the sentence is, um, the law allows for the judge on a sentence modification to impose any sentence that they were lawfully allowed to impose at the time of the original sentencing. So if you were convicted of a home burglary, which right now, um, as we're recording this video, uh, burglary in the state of Indiana is a level four felony offense. It's got a sentence range of anywhere between two years as the minimum sentence and 12 years as the maximum sentence. If you are convicted after trial, the judge can sentence you anywhere between two to 12 years on that. If you just say, hey, I am guilty of the burglary, we just don't agree on what the sentence is, we want you to decide what the sentence is, the judge can impose a sentence anywhere between two to 12 years on that. That's 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 their discretion with it. So sure. that becomes something that is subject to the sentence modification statute. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, because nothing in the law is ever allowed to actually be easy, there are procedural rules that we have in place in Indiana for the ability to pursue a sentence modification. Uh, The first is you are only allowed to have two sentence modifications. Or sorry, let me rephrase it. You're only allowed to have two requests for sentence modifications. Okay. Um, If the judge says, and, and the judge doesn't have to even have a hearing on that. So you can, you can write to the judge, you can, you can file a motion for sentence modification. And the judge has the ability to deny that without even having a hearing. Like they don't even have to take a look at it and boom, you know, now all of a sudden you don't have the ability to modify that sentence. That's one of your two strikes right there. Okay. The other thing is depending on what the offense is, 
if you are more than 365 days from the day of your sentencing, you may need to get the prosecutor's permission to even have a hearing on that. Mm. Um, which, I was just going to ask you yeah. about, you know, how where the prosecutor falls in this place. So, okay, continue, continue. Yeah, it's it is from a separation of power standpoint, from a fundamental fairness standpoint, it is absolutely ridiculous that the prosecution would have any authority over whether or not the court can modify its own sentence. Sure. I unfortunately was not part of that committee when that change in the law went into effect. I don't think any defense attorney, I don't think any defense attorneys were part of that committee. Sure. Um, But the, the way the law is written is any offense, if a request is made within the first 365 days, any offense, no matter what it is, um, the defendant can request a modification and the prosecution, I mean, the prosecution can object at the hearing, but they can't object to actually requesting a modification. Um, If it's more than 365 days from the date of sentencing, any violent offense requires the prosecutor's consent to even have a hearing and, and a violent offense that's defined by statute. It it encompasses all the important ones that you would, that you would obviously think about your robberies, your Mm -hmm. serious injury batteries, uh, any type of assault case, uh, homicides. Um, and, And the reason that's a problem is as a practical matter, if you get sent to prison, you know, you, you go to trial and you're convicted of something like robbery and you're there for less than 365 days and you ask the judge to consider you for a sentence modification, you're probably not going to get it. Sure. You, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, that's an inherently violent <laughs> enough offense that um, there, there's, there's going to be a question on the court's part about how much rehabilitation did you really get within that 365 days? Mm-hmm. And if the court denies it to that point in time, you know, first, that's one of your two strikes that we just talked about. Uh, second, now you need the prosecution's permission to even ask for a modification afterwards. And that's obviously, I, again, much like, much like asking them to agree to modify their own plea agreements, they're not going to create work for themselves if they don't have to. And, and that represents a sizable problem with regards to, to how all of this works out. And, and that is, that's your, that's, that's your soapbox speech about fundamental unfairness and, <laughs> and that process. But it's it, admittedly, it's very difficult to get the sense modification. Yeah. Um, th- there are a couple of programs that are in there and, and these can be part of a sentencing order. Indiana has, mm-hmm. um, two Department of Corrections programs. There's uh, Recovery While Incarcerated. That's the RWI program and uh, Purposeful Incarceration. They're not they're not 100% the same Recovery While Incarcerated. RWI is a little bit more for people who have substance abuse related issues. Uh, purposeful Incarceration is a little bit more of a catch-all. It can kind of hit mm-hmm. all things. Uh, those programs involve um, you know, substance abuse counseling, parenting classes, educational sure, sure. programs, things of that nature. And those statutes specifically do say that if you are ordered into those programs by the trial court and you successfully complete those programs, you have a right under that statute to ask the court to consider you for a modification. So that, mm. that can bypass that general structure that we just talked about. Right. You're right. Um, and, and sometimes it's successful. We we had uh, we had a client earlier this year 
who was ordered into uh, recovery while incarcerated. They, you know, he had a he had a long history of uh, multiple multiple um, mid to high level drug offenses, mm. and uh, he got into the he was he was ordered to recovery while incarcerated, and okay. we requested a modification of his sentence and. You know, we were we were hoping to modify him out of the Department of Corrections to something sure. like work release or home detention. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was not successful, but the judge did take four years off of his sentence, and okay. that's that was at least something. It was better than nothing. Right, um, right. So, so Jack, a, a big theme, really, despite us walking through three different, you know, the, the overarching theme of today's conversation and what happens after a conviction, there are a handful of options that truly exist. It's going through the appeal process, looking at post-conviction relief, and the third being potential sentence modification. So if there's a few takeaways from this episode for our audience is that options do exist. And obviously every case is super circumstantial. So Based on circumstances of the case, backgrounds, so many things, these options might be more viable for you than another case. Despite, you know, Jack, you saying a few different times, it's tough to find that true success, if you will, you know, in in completely modifying somebody's sentence to get them out of their conviction entirely. Whereas right there, case in point that you just had where you know, the sentence modif- you know, modification effort ended up yielding four years off of a, of a sentence time. So all in all, there are options that exist. There are benefits to each one. Uh, you know, so Jack, as we bring this conversation to, to a head here today, of these three different processes that we kind of walk through today, is there one that you see that's more successful than another? Or, or is there one that you find as, as a, you know, criminal defense lawyer that that pop up more often than another walk you know what do you see in terms of these three on your regular dealings in the indiana state law system (laughs) if i were going to say that one had a greater likelihood of success than another as far as my personal practice is concerned i would say that we have had greater success with sentence modification Mm -hmm. and and the only reason i say that is that after having done this for um gosh uh closing it on closing it on 16 years now i think at this point in time um we know enough of the prosecutors in the decision-making areas, at least here in Marion County, that we can at least get them to return a telephone call to us. That doesn't mean that they're going to listen to us. It doesn't mean they're necessarily going to agree with us, but we can at least get a foot in the door to start having that discussion. Because Mm -hmm. as I said, prosecutors as a whole, they're not going to want to create more work for themselves. So getting them to go back and re-examine a plea agreement that might have been done or a sentencing hearing sure. that might have been ordered previously. That's not something that is 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 going to be very easy to convince them to do. We are mm-hmm. sometimes able to get them to do that. So from the perspective of what I see uh, on my trial level practice, mm-hmm. um, that's probably the most successful of the three. Uh, I do have, I do have two very good friends who have appellate level practices and, um, they're, they're both very good at their jobs. Uh, Mm. and, and they have, they have actually managed to successfully fall into that mythical 
or not mythical, magical 11% <laughs> that is actually getting it. So uh, I, I am completely in awe of them being able to do that. I did, uh, I did two appeals. No, I did three appeals. I've done three appeals in my career. Um, the, the last appeal, uh, we, we made what they refer to as bad law. <laughs> so oh, I decided that appeals were not for me. It's like, you know, so <laughs> I, I get that that comes up and it's, it's also fascinating that, um, it's also fascinating when a case that I worked on at the trial court level gets cited as an appellate decision moving forward. Mm. Uh, we, we had a trial two weeks ago where the prosecutor used, one of the cases that I did the trial on as, as uh, the easy appeals decision to argue that oh. my position was incorrect. So it's like, it's kind of, kind of like a double gut punch on that when we lost it the first sure. time around and then you're losing my loss against me to, to prevent me from getting our way the second time around too, which unfortunately was successful. Um, that, that is, that, that was a bit of a, bit of a tweak in the nose. Appeals on can but. be a fickle friend. It sounds like in they really are. They really are. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it, it is interesting to see those cases that mm-hmm. you've worked on Certainly. go up on the appeals and have the decisions come back down. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, no, as, as far as, as far as what I would say is successful, um, I think the modifications are successful. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, what we've found with the PCRs that we've worked on over the years, uh, which, which again, if you thought that two years for a trial sometimes was a was you know a lengthy, I don't I don't even want to tell you how long some of these PCRs go for. I believe. Um, but what we have found is sometimes based off of what we're doing with the PCRs, we can sometimes springboard that into an agreed modification, and you know it's it's always worth proceeding with. It's always it's always worth at least investigating it. Um, we you know, we tell people all the time, we are happy to conduct a file review of your case for you and give you our Mm -hmm. professional opinion as to this is what we think would work. This is what we think is not going to work. And this is what we think the likelihood of success is going to be. Mm -hmm. Because you don't don't know until you ask. And and I would rather, you know, I would I would rather spend the time talking to a, a client or the representative of a client, because of, of course, mm-hmm. since modifications, PCRs, overwhelmingly, those people are incarcerated. I would rather spend the time talking to them. And I would rather take their investment in services and, and do that review and give them a write up and let them know this is what I think. And I'm not the authority on it. It's like there, there are, there are hundreds of attorneys in the state. You know, I don't have right. the same opinion as most of my colleagues. They may have a different one, but at least you have a knowledge. You, you kind of right. have an idea. Someone has looked at this. Someone has given me a write up and yeah. we're happy to do that. And, a and you never know. Looking at it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I appreciate you, you bringing that up because to really round our conversation out today, Jack, if somebody is interested in that file review or ultimately just interested in general about you and your dealings at Razumich and Associates, you know, uh, they're interested in all of what, you know, that we've covered on this show and they're, they want to reach out and start a dialogue in some capacity or another, how would they go about doing that? What, where should they travel? You know, maybe online, is there a phone number that they should call? Uh, how can somebody get a hold of you? I always tell people the absolute best way to reach our office is to give us a call. The, uh, the main telephone number here at our office is 317-983-5333. That number is monitored 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even on holidays. We've gotten calls on Christmas and I have staff members 
who, um, you know, are good enough to sacrifice their time, sacrifice uh, a couple hours of their day on those holidays to make sure those calls get answered. So um, no phone call to our office is ever ignored. And then we do have other team members who uh, their job is to make sure those telephone calls are returned as quickly as possible. Um, and, and that's going to be the best way of doing it. Um, I know that here on Facebook, you can contact us through uh, through the website, um, not the website, the, the, the business page. There's, there's one of those click to chat mm-hmm. buttons on there. Right. Uh, so that'll get to us also. But definitely, definitely calling us is the best way to get our attention. Uh, we strive. We do everything we possibly can to make sure that calls are returned the same business day that we get them. Uh, that number again, 317-983-5333. Fantastic. Well, Jack, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. I, I really did love the conversation surrounding what does come after the conviction. I think most people, you know, the conviction's over, it's it's done with, but it's not really the case here in criminal law. So I appreciate you kind of peeling back the curtain, sharing some industry insights. And uh, look, I'm as always, I'm already looking forward to the next episode. Thanks, Jack. Same here. Alrighty, and look, of course, we want to take one more moment to thank you, our audience, for joining us here on today's show. If you liked what you saw, you liked the conversation today, please feel free to like the show, comment, subscribe, share this information with friends and family. At the end of the day, Jack and I are doing this show. We're getting together for these conversations to help enlighten you about the different avenues throughout criminal law, throughout Jack's dealings with criminal law across the state of Indiana. And we would hate to have you miss another episode full of some good conversation. So for Mr. Jack Rasmich, I'm Ryan Ruff saying so long. And we thank you so much for joining us on today's edition of Closing Arguments. <laughs>